Well, good morning. It is so good to be here with y'all this morning. Already an awesome time of worship through song. Y'all take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 5. We're studying Acts on Sunday mornings here at Chandler Drive. And what I love about this book, and it's really true about the entire, the entirety of Scripture, is that it doesn't just give you the proud, pretty parts of the history of the early church. It gives you the good and the bad and the ugly. And it's all here. Why is it all here? Because it all happened. It really gives us confidence in our faith that we have a biblical faith, but we also have a historical faith. And uh, that's something that certainly gives us confidence. But it's a story that's filled with good moments, and it's a story that's filled with bad moments, right? Good news moments and bad news moments. We're, we're familiar with those kind of stories, right? Stories where things seem to be going good, and there's a plot twist, and something bad happens, and it swings back to something good happening. And so I heard a, a good story this last week uh, that can illustrate this, and it was about uh, two guys that made a pact that uh, whoever died first and got to heaven, that they'd come back and let the other person know whether or not baseball is in heaven, all right? So that's the way the story went, and, and so the, uh, one of the guys passed away, and he kept his promise. A few weeks later, he came back and appeared before this other guy who was left here on earth, and he said, hey, I, I've got good news and bad news. And he's like, okay, well, give me the good news. He said, well, the good news is, is there's absolutely baseball in heaven. He goes, it's incredible. He goes, it's unlike anything you've ever seen in your life. I'm telling you, it is the most beautiful field you've ever seen. You get to play with the greats who, who knew Jesus. I mean, it is amazing. It's, a, it, it's phenomenal. I can't even put into words to describe to you how amazing it is. And the guy's like, man, that is good news. Thank you for coming and telling me that. That is amazing news. But what do you said bad news? What's the bad news? He said, well, the bad news is, is you're, you're starting as pitcher this Saturday. <laughs> I knew it'd take you a second to get that. All right. Uh, sorry, it's a cheesy joke. I know, but it illustrates that we are all familiar with stories that have good news and bad news moments. And Acts is filled with these good news, bad news moments. All right. So uh, we've already seen that up to this point. Jesus dies on the cross. That seems like a bad news moment. He raises from the dead, and in an instant, all of a sudden, what looked like the worst news ever becomes the best news moment ever in the history of humanity, in the history of the world. And then, you know, everything's good, and then Jesus, who those disciples loved, who they loved spending time with, he says, I got to go. I'm ascending to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. That seemed like a bad moment for them. But then in Acts 2, what's recorded is Jesus sends the helper that he'd said he'd send, a a gift, something even better, a presence even better than him being there with them in in his physical body. He's actually going to send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to indwell them, to fill them up, to be their helper, to empower them, to continue the mission that he's called them to. That was a good moment. And we've seen a lot of good moments. We've seen bad moments already here in the book of Acts. We've seen a lot of good moments. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of great preaching and people receiving the gospel and a lot of people being, thousands of people being saved. Some incredible miracles. I mean, we, we read about, we studied about the miracle of that lame man and Peter comes by and says, take my hand, get up and walk in the name of Jesus. The power of Jesus got a hold of that man's body and gave him new legs and he's running around dancing, praising the Lord. Can you imagine being in the middle of that? Can you imagine experiencing those miracles? Can you imagine watching those miracles happen? Now, I experienced a little mini miracle this morning in my own life. All right, my wife, along with 30 other ladies from our church, are on a women's retreat, and they're all headed back today. And I, by myself, got all three of my kids up and dressed 
in here alive this morning, that's a miracle, right? Hey, they may not have matching clothes on. Their shoes may not be on the wrong, right feet. Their mullets may not be combed right, but they are here. Praise God, they are here. The secret in that is they got an older sister who's kind of like a little mini mom who helped me a lot this morning. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, those early days in the church been exciting. It's, uh, there's a lot of good stuff happening. There's bad stuff that has happened. Opposition has hit the church. But a different kind of bad moment is about to hit the church. Uh, it, you know, the enemy's not going to prevail. Nothing's going to stop the church. But it's going to be a bad moment in the church. And here's what's different about it. All the bad, all the ugly opposition that they have experienced up to this point has come from the outside. And for the very first time in the history of the New Testament church, there's an opposition that we still encounter today, and it's opposition through sinfulness within the body, within the church. It's a very sobering text of Scripture. Stand with your Bibles open in Acts chapter 5. Beginning to read in verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead. And they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And it says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Would you have a seat as I pray? Fathers, we camp out in this text for a few moments this morning, Lord. I pray that you would empower us and help us to be able to see and to know and receive your word. Lord, we cannot receive these truths and understand these truths and apply these truths if you don't enable us to do so. And so, Lord, we... The best we know how, ask you to do that. We ask that your spirit would take this service, would take our hearts, would use your word to grow us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was an encouraging text to read, right? That felt like a nice, positive, encouraging Caleb text of scripture to kick off with this morning. And I'm just going to be completely transparent. When I cracked open the books earlier this week and remembered where we were at and what the story would be that we would be covering this morning, I wasn't necessarily jumping through the roof with excitement. All right, a few weeks ago, we got to celebrate the resurrection. I mean, that text will preach, right? That was fun to, to preach and to, for us to celebrate together. And then the week after that, we got to look at the boldness that filled those, those apostles, Peter and John, even in the face of persecution, the face of opposition. And we got to celebrate that boldness last week. Uh, you know, Brody preached on missions, and that was exciting to, to hear that. And I get to preach on the two people that dropped dead in the middle of a church service. But it's an important text. It's a very important text. In fact, it's a very important warning for the church today, just as much as it was in that day. And it's a story that shows us this, that pretending, that playing games, that trying to fake it till you make it, that being a hypocrite never ends well. 
never ends well. In fact, when I say that word hypocrite, I wonder what you think about. Maybe some things enter your minds. What do you think about when I say hypocrite? Maybe you're thinking of a a political person, somebody in politics who says one thing and acts one way, and it's revealed that underneath all of that, it didn't match the exterior. Maybe you think of a famous pastor who gets exposed in moral failure. We've unfortunately seen that happen through the years, right? Maybe you're thinking right now of, of on those lines of someone who says one thing, presents themselves one way, but does something that contradicts the way that they present themselves, right? Maybe in a fun way, you're thinking about somebody in your life, right? You're thinking about maybe your spouse who you live with, who was just all about that diet. They were telling everybody about that new diet that they were trying earlier this year. You know, I'm going vegan. I'm eating clean. They're teaching people about the diet that they're on. And then you, you, you're their spouse. You looked at their bank account and you're like, they went by Krispy Kreme, right? They're going by McDonald's, right? Hypocrite, no, right? What do you think about when you hear the word hypocrite? I wonder how many of you actually thought about the way that it's literally defined as an actor in a play. That's the way the word hypocrite is defined. You can even look it up in Webster's Dictionary, an actor or a stage play. And it was a name that was used for ancient Greek actors in the ancient theater life who would wear these big oversized masks in certain types of plays and would play different characters in those different stories. And it's a word, it's one of those rare words that has continued to be used now more in a figurative way to describe people who wear figurative masks and pretend to be somebody that they're not. Like the two people who are in the story that we're looking at this morning. Two people who are faking it. The first truth that I want us to see here, just the observation that I want us to see here in this passage is this. Luke paints for us a terrifying picture, a dangerous picture of self-centered phony faith. A terrifying picture of self-centered, phony faith. Look at verse one. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that first word there, that conjunction, the word but, B-U-T, is important when he says, but a man named Ananias. That's an important part there because it links it to the passage uh, before, the previous passage. And we understand as we study this that Luke intends for you to understand this passage in light of, not just in light of, linked with the passage before. Those six verses that end chapter 4. A passage in which we learn about another man, another group of people, but specifically another man named Barnabas who also sold land. It uses that same language for the purpose of linking it with Ananias and Sapphira, but humbly brought it before the apostles, brought everything that he had sold and brought that gift into the church, and it was a generous gift, came out of a humble, authentic, sincere, surrendered heart, lays it at the apostles' feet so it can be used to meet people's needs. This was a man who was celebrated. They even gave him a nickname. And everybody's celebrating. Everybody's excited. It's a celebratory moment, except for a couple standing in the shadows with their arms crossed named Ananias and Sapphira, who in their minds, this is what they're thinking, is everybody else is praising God and celebrating over what Barnabas has done, this act of worship. They're thinking this, I want to be celebrated like that. I want to be respected like that. I want to get patted on the back like that. Hey, I want to get a cool nickname like that. I want to be known like that. And there's this light bulb moment that goes off in Ananias' head. And he runs out and he sells some of their land. And who knows, let's just use our imagination. Maybe they had a nice little slice of riverfront property. Sell it for 300 and 
maybe $300,000 and he, he has that cash in his hands and, and all of a sudden he has another idea as he's feeling all of that cash. Well, do we want to give all of it? And I'll tell you, this is what we're going to do, Ananias. This is what we're we going to do, Sapphira. We're going to take half of this. We're going to put half of it in the safe of the house. You know, who knows? We may need that for a rainy day. And we're going to take the other 150000 We're going to go down to the church and we're going to give it. But I want us to give it, you know, I want, to, I want us to give the impression like we're giving everything we sold the land for. Peter and those guys, they're not real estate. They don't know any difference. All right. So we're, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give all of it. We're Hey, and it's still a generous amount. It's still a great offering that we're giving, but that's a plan. Stick with it. I'm telling you, you hang with me here, Sapphira, and we'll be high-fiving people before you know it. And we'll be hugging. We'll have that same moment we saw Barnabas had yesterday. Hey, they may even give me a nickname, Sapphira. And they agree to go through with it. And this is, this is a tragic path to walk. And what's happening here is they're taking half of this money and they're going and they're pretending. Do you see what's happening beneath all of this? Here's what's happening. Here's the dangerous game that they're playing. They're coveting the reputation of Barnabas, but not willing to pay the price of laying down the totality of their life for Jesus Christ. The sin is not them giving half, right? They could have given what they wanted to give. Whatever they felt like the Spirit of God was leading them to give. They could have given whatever they wanted to in that moment. The sin is that they're pretending to give all of it when they're really not. See, their problem is that their greatest desire was not to praise God with their stuff, to praise God with their money, to praise God with their finances, to praise God with their time and all of their life. But their main priority was to attract attention and the praise of people. In other words, they wanted to be known as generous people more than they wanted to be generous people. They wanted to be known as spiritually serious people more than they wanted to be spiritually serious. And that is a warning for us. That is a warning for the church today. I'm telling you, lest you start wanting to look good more than you really genuinely desire to be good for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. And it all stems, where does that come from? It all stems from thinking way too much about what other people think and idolizing the approval of man. And I'm telling you, can we just be real this morning? Isn't that a temptation? Is it not, a t- is it not tempting at times to appear like we got our stuff together way more than we really do? To appear to be more than we really are. And I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. The temptation's there, it's real. We're not careful, man. You can start turning. You can start turning your spiritual growth. You can start turning how much Bible knowledge you obtain. You can turn how much you know you're involved in the local church through service, almost like into a competitive sport, to where it becomes more about me presenting myself a certain way to impress people and to maintain an all-in, all-surrendered image. When underneath the veneer and beneath all of those confessions and that nonstop service, it tells a different story. The story is a sobering reminder, listen, that God is not okay with hypocrisy. God is not okay with pretending. You say, well, how serious is he? Let's keep moving. Look at verse three. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to do this? At the end of verse four, he says again, you've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. And if you read that, the way that he fires off those questions, boom, 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 over and over again, the tone in the heart of what he's getting at is this. Why would you do that? You think you can lie to God? Like, why are you testing a holy God? It's God. You you think he's busy keeping the planets rotating? You think he's busy taking care of other things in the universe and he has bigger and better things to do than to pay attention to your life? 
You think you can hide from him? You think you can trick him? You think you can get away with this? You think he won't know? I mean, it's like you have little kids and you are at the house and they're in the kitchen and you walk around the corner, you walk in the house and, and there those cookies are over there that are supposed to be cooling off that you said to stay out of and they jump away from the pan. And you say, what were you doing? Nothing. Did you eat one of those cookies? No. Well, what's the chocolate? What's, what's the chocolate on your mouth? I don't know. That's really strange. I don't know how that got on there. That's really strange how that melted chocolate chip got on my mouth. I don't know. Right? You know, that's how foolish, that's how foolish we look when we try to hide from God. Hey, and here's the thing. Once, as we get older, we think we get wiser. We think we get better at fooling people. We think we get better at hiding. And what this story shows us is we can get more clever and we can learn how to hide and we can learn how to fool our friends. We can learn how to fool our church. We can learn how to fool our spouse. We can even learn how to fool our mama, which is really difficult to do because moms are basically like walking lie detectors, right? But you can get to where you can fool everybody else in your life. You cannot fool God. You cannot keep secrets from God. You can look at Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You can look at King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You can look at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who all illustrate the truth that we read in Numbers 32 that your sin will find you out. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. And how did you like this job? And the young men rose and wrapped him up. And carried him out and buried him. It's like, well, those guys, like, they probably ask, the, the youth group always gets that, that, that cho- those types of chores, right? Probably got some, some young men and, hey, y'all get in here, interns, take this body off. And then Sapphira comes in and she has an opportunity to come clean. And that's a tragic part of the story, too. She has an opportunity. She doesn't know what's been going on. She has an opportunity to come clean and confess. And Peter says, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. And she sticks to her story. She sticks by her man. Ladies, by the way, submission is never following your, biblical submission is never following your husband into sin. And men, it's a reminder that your decisions affect more than just you. She sticks to her guns. You don't see the mutual accountability that you should see here. Should there not have been one person in that relationship? They appear to be Christian. They appear to be around the right stuff. They appear to know what is true. And what is false, somebody along the way to go, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Let's sit down and think about this. Maybe this is a bad idea, but no. And it's a deadly mistake. And she drops dead. And again, it says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And this is what's happening right here. God's making a clear point from the outset of this gospel movement that he is a holy God, that he, listen, we are made in his image. He refuses to stand by and ever allow us to try to remake him in our image And to make him way more okay with sin than he really is. And it's a story. It's a a tough story. But it's a story that's meant to make us sit still and to go, he is king. He is a holy God. He is not a God to be trifled with. There's a message here about for, for those who are lost. There's a message here for people who aren't saved. There's a message here for people who Jesus is not the Lord and Savior of your life, right? You're here to church service, but you have not laid your life at the disposal of service of the Lord. You're not a servant of Christ. You're not a Christian. This is a prophetic picture of every, of every person who maintains a heart like Ananias and Sapphira. 
Like just because this isn't still happening, just because people aren't zapping, you know, dead because they sin. Listen, don't make the mistake of missing a warning here of impending judgment for sin. And maybe you're wondering this. Maybe, maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're, you've never made the decision to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ and be saved. And you read stories like this and you think, this is stuff I have problems with. Like why so harsh? Like, why did they have to die? Which I would push back and go, that's the wrong question. The question, we shouldn't be wondering, why did they die? We ought to be wondering, why does he let any of us live? When you understand his holiness, when you understand the inability, a holy God, creator God who made everything, who's a perfect God, has to have any type of relationship with sin, who has to judge sin, who, yes, is full of love, but is also full of of pure, perfect justice, who has to deal with it. You begin to wonder, why does he let any of us live? And the fact that you're alive this morning, the fact that you have air in your lungs and a heart beating in your chest is showing you that, yes, he is a holy God, but he's also patient and slow to anger. And his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. His patience is meant to give you time to be redeemed. So let the day be the day of your salvation. But there's a message for the church here as well. And it's this, that from the onset of this gospel movement, that God is sending a clear message. They'll say that, yes, he is a God of love. Don't get me wrong this morning. We've been celebrating the love of God in the songs we've been singing. We've been singing gospel truths about the love that God has for sinners who have been saved by grace. He is a God of love. He loved you so much that he sent his son to bear your sins on that cross, absorb in your place the judgment of God on that cross. He's made the way for us to be forgiven because he loves us. He's made a way for us to be adopted into his family because he loved us. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I am his. He is mine. But listen, make no mistake. He still hates sin. He is still passionately concerned for the purity of his bride. And we need to hear this in a day when we try to make God way more okay with sin in our life than he really is. And this is a story that where God's making clear from the very beginning of this movement that we're swept up in. We're, we're part of this. We're, we're in this room right here and we're part of this gospel movement. And he's making it clear. Listen, I love you, but do not forget. I am not like you. I'm not your buddy. I'm holy. I love you. I want a relationship with you. I'm your friend, but I'm holy and majestic. Listen, I'm definitely never okay with people who claim to be believers living in long seasons of hiding your sin and pretending like I can't see you. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, it says this, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every child he receives. You know what that means? It means if you're hiding in your sin, you may not drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira. You probably won't. It doesn't happen a whole lot anymore. Praise God for that. But sin still destroys. It still brings death. Death to relationships. It deadens in spiritual ears and senses. It can destroy families and relationships. It'll cost you. It'll always cost you way more than you want to pay and hold you longer than you want to stay. It enslaves you. And so the question is, what do you do? What do we do about this? 
What helps us lay down masks? What helps us lay down hypocrisy? What helps us not hide? What helps us run down pathways of holiness and to stay in lanes of repentance instead of hypocrisy and half-hearted devotion? What's the answer? You ready? Come back to this a lot. The gospel. What I love about the way that Luke lays this out is he lays right next to this example of hypocrisy and phony faith. He attaches it to a different group of people. He attaches it to a different crowd. He attaches it to a group of disciples who are following Jesus with a wholehearted, authentic devotion. And it's as if he's doing this with the way that he's linking these together with that conjunction at the beginning of verse 1. It's as if he's saying, which, who are you going to be? Hey, here's my recommendation. Instead of being like drop-dead Fred and his wife, be like these other people that I'm going to show you. Get it. And are fully surrendered. And the second truth, and we kind of back up, I know I worked at this kind of backwards this morning, is we see a beautiful picture of gospel-fueled, wholehearted devotion. And what I want you to get here is I want you to get just a general sense of what the early church was like. I want you to imagine you walking into the early church and experiencing the life there, experiencing the fellowship there experiencing the relationships there, kind of watching the way people were interacting with one another. And I want you to notice how the gospel has invaded lives. The gospel has invaded the atmosphere of that early church. Look at what it says in verse 32 and 33 of chapter four. Now the full number of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that of any things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. All right, it says that they were of one heart and one soul. All right, in other words, they had one heart that were committed to the same gospel, to the same mission, to the same truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, it, and we see this fellowship right here. It's the same koinonia type of fellowship that we see in Acts chapter two at the end of that chapter that we studied a few weeks ago. But it's a fellowship that doesn't depend on the same things that, that draw people together in, in the world, right? So there's an amazing thing that's happening here, right? You see different people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, have different stories, just different affinity groups, people who, for some of these folks, were complete enemies of them prior to coming to Jesus Christ, and yet now they're living as a faith family. Now they're living in this fellowship with one another. How is that happening? Because they have hearts that are rooted in the reality. They've met Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's the resurrected Jesus who's come to change all of their lives to lift them all up to new life and a new way of living. And they have that one thing in common. That one thing in common is enough to break down all of those different barriers. And it says this at the end of verse 33, great grace was upon them. You see a people here, we get an up-close look at a people here who are being transformed from the inside out. This wasn't fake, this wasn't phony, this wasn't just on the surface. They were being transformed by the power of the gospel. And it gives us one way to understand that this was happening. Evidence that this, was, that this grace was in their lives and upon them. It says this, this is how we know it. It says there was not a needy person among them. Isn't that amazing? Not one needy person. And this, this is a big group. Again, when you think about the 5,000 who have been saved, 3,000 and the 2,000, and then you begin to understand they're just counting men. And so this is fifteen to 20,000 people who have all gathered together. 
And they don't want to leave town. It's like old ancient version of Woodstock without the drugs. And maybe that's a bad illustration. But they're all there. They don't want to leave. They're camping out. And there's needs. And, 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 but no one's needy. They're, they're sharing. There's an amazing amount of generosity that's happening. I mean, there, there's no record of, a, of a, a sermon on finances. There's no you know, capital campaign happening here. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. What's happening here is they just keep preaching the gospel. And as they keep preaching, the, that's all they're doing. Give a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications that come along with that. And as they preach the gospel, the people just knew what to do. As they preached the gospel, what happened is people naturally held onto the things of this earth in their possessions and their stuff more loosely. Because they understood what Jesus had done for them. They understood the magnitude of that. They understood Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, something to be grasped. But he laid it aside. And he voluntarily stripped himself of that privilege and position and glory and gave up the comforts of heaven and took on the form of a servant and put on flesh and stepped out of heaven and into our mess and allowed himself to be nailed to that cross for you and for me. Though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty, we would become rich. And these early believers, why are they so generous? Why are they giving up so much for the sake of the mission? Because they understood what had been given to them in Christ Jesus. The gospel makes us generous. If you're not generous, if you're not looking to meet the needs of other people, you have yet to believe and understand the gospel. That's the natural result of understanding the gospel. God gave his only son for me. Now I look to meet the needs of others and I seek to be a generous person because of how generous he's been to me. And just the resurrection changes the way you see stuff. The resurrection changes the way we see our stuff. Doesn't that make sense? If it is true that Jesus is risen from the dead, if it is true that he's risen from the dead, it means I've been delivered from the power of darkness. It means that I've received the everlasting resurrection life that he's promised me. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that he's given you resurrection, eternal, everlasting life, because he's risen again, because you've received him as your Lord and Savior and you follow him, guess what? At the end of the day, your stuff loses a lot of significance. Your possession loses a lot of significance. Your property loses a lot of significance. So the truth of the resurrection, it loosens our grip on our stuff. It makes us, that's what makes us less materialistic. That's what makes us love money less. That's what compels us to take what God has blessed us with. And instead of being a cove or keeping that in a container, I become a conduit of his blessing. Instead of hoarding it to myself, I do what Jesus did. I let go of what I claim is rightfully mine and let it go to hold tighter to something bigger than myself. And that's the mission of the gospel. The more your heart is convinced that in Christ, because the resurrection is true, that you have everything. Listen, you'll realize you can give away anything. And that truth hits the heart of these early believers. And what happens here is, I mean, you see a giving frenzy. This is not some case that you can make from this text on why communism works. Some people have tried to, you know, present this as some ancient form of communism. That's not what you have here. This is all voluntary. You see that with Ananias and Sapphira, they had the right, their private property. They could have brought whatever they wanted to bring. 
And yet you have these others who are voluntarily, because they understand the gospel and the resurrection of Christ has caused them to have a looser grip on their stuff. And they're selling their stuff. They're selling their livestock. They're selling their camels. They're liquidating their 401ks. They're selling pieces of land. They're bringing it to the apostles' feet for the sake of something bigger than themselves, the gospel. And then the story zooms in on one individual who kind of serves as an example to this. All right, look at verse 36. It says, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They really like nicknames. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is one of Luke's favorite guys to talk about. And I think there's a reason for that. He even has a nickname that kind of gives you a little insight into why Luke had a, a place in his heart for Barnabas. Says he was a Levite from Cyprus. Six times you see him talked about throughout Acts. I'm not going to cover all of those, but I will say this. You go look. Every single time he is presented as a generous, missions-focused, others-focused person, disciple of Jesus Christ. And here's, the, here's what hit me as I studied this, this, this week. The early church was full of Barnabases. They were all over the place. We just don't know their names. And I would argue that that this right here is a big reason why the early church had such a big impact in that part of the world, in that community, and to the ends of the earth like it did. It may help us understand why a lot of churches today throughout our nation, throughout our world, lack a gospel impact. Because here's what you see in this church, and you see it in Barnabas' life, and then as you back back up and you see there's more than just Barnabas, and you see the way they're interacting and the way they're being generous and the way they're sacrificing, here's what we begin to understand. That they weren't just preaching the gospel. That they weren't just saying the right things. That they weren't just talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They weren't just proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ found in the gospel. You walked into that fellowship. You didn't just hear it being preached. You felt it. It was real. They were living gospel-centered lives. There were people who, who were there. You, you, they felt alive. They felt excited. They felt enthusiastic. They felt like they were full of joy. You people, you, people walked in there and they saw a difference that the gospel was making in people's lives. They saw people who were wholly devoted to Jesus, surrendered, real, generous. They saw the way that they loved each other. They saw the way that they served each other. They saw the way that they weren't gossiping about each other like everybody else in the world. They were forgiving each other. They were extending mercy and grace. They were encouraging each other in their walk with Christ. And they saw a place that was full of truth, but full of grace and full of mercy. And they saw a place where you didn't have to wear a mask. And that's what makes the story of Ananias and Sapphira so tragic. This was a place in the early church where it was okay to not be okay. And how easily the story of Ananias and Sapphira could have gone a different way. I mean, what if Ananias that next day comes to Peter and says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Can I talk to you over here to the side? I need to talk to somebody. When we were celebrating Barnabas' gift, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I was jealous. I was jealous of the attention he was getting. I was jealous of how everybody was cheering him on and patting him on the back. And I want you to know I've been tempted to sacrifice my character to try to get that same thing. 
And I want you to, Peter, can you pray for me? Can you help me? I don't see Peter going, no, 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 no. (laughs) Hold on a second. We don't have room around here for people like that. You just need to get on out of here, right? How do I know with confidence that Peter wouldn't react like that? Because if there's anyone who knows what it means to be a hypocrite, it's Peter. They knew his story and yet still refused to take down the mask. They knew his story and still refused to come out of hiding. And here's the problem today. Here's the problem right here in this room. You ready? Is we see a story like this and it's very clear cut. You you, you see it, you're like, of course it was dumb for them not to go to Peter like that. Of course it was dumb for them to not, I mean, they could have brought that out into the light and, you know, there may have been tough conversations and, but there would have been grace that would have been shown and mercy that would have been shown and, And we look at that and go, of course, Ananias and Sapphira should have reacted that way. And yet some of you still hide. Can I let us all in on a little secret? All of us hide. We're all pretenders. Every single one of us. In every single chair, including the one you're sitting in. We're all hypocrites. We all pretend. We all pretend in moments that we know more than we really know. We all at times pretend that we've achieved more than we've achieved. We at times pretend like we're working harder than we're really working so that people think that we're working hard. We pretend at times to be happier than we really are. We pretend at times to be more humble than we really are. We pretend at times to be more put together than we really are. We're fakers. Let's just have a confession moment this morning. It'll make us feel better, all right? I mean, have you ever been in a group of people and heard somebody mention something in the news and, and you felt like maybe I should know about that? I'm going to look dumb if I don't know about that. So you just kind of act like you know about it. We're pretenders. You ever been at home and you're, you're on your phone or you're watching TV and somebody comes in and you throw that away and you bring out a book because that's going to make me look like I'm using my time a little more productively. That's only me. Okay, so leave me up here alone. I appreciate that. You ever been driving down the road and you know that person next to you wants to get over and you know they're eyeballing you and they're, they're looking your way and you don't, want to, you, you, don't want to, you don't want them to get over. So you go back to drivers and all of a sudden you become like 10 and 2. I got to be a focused driver right here. Sorry. And you pretend like you don't see them. Have you never been in a grocery store recently? Just real talk. Peter made a clay up here. All right. Real talk. You've not been in a grocery store and, and pretended like the little automated message that came over the intercom about wearing your mask, pretending like you didn't hear that. Nobody, anybody else? Hey, have you ever faked it? Raise your hand. Just in in the room. Has anybody ever faked it? And how many of you didn't just raise your hand pretending like you didn't hear me ask the question? Did you fake it? Faker. Hey, it's not a matter of, are we hypocrites? Every one of us are hypocrites. Here's the difference. All of us are hypocrites. The real question is, are you a repentant hypocrite? First Peter 2, 1 says this, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Man, if I could have a title for this sermon, it would just simply be stop hiding. It doesn't make sense. As a believer, stop hiding, confess hidden sin, repent of being a hypocrite, run to the cross. Why is that so important to run to the cross? Because it's at the cross that God can begin to tear down our hypocritical tendencies. Because the God, we're reminded at the cross once again that God frees us from being addicted to self and being addicted to stuff and being addicted to the applause of men. Why? Because we have his applause. We're fully embraced and accepted and loved by him. We have his approval. We matter to the one who who is the only one whose opinion really matters. 
We have his love. And it frees us. That's what frees us from, from wanting to lie and to steal and to deceive and to pretend. To try to impress people. And you know what? This church should be a place where we don't have to hide. Because here's the devastating truth, the reality here this morning. If some of you don't feel free to bring some stuff out in the open. See, in a room like this, some of you, you feel convicted about your sin. You know, Jonathan, I, I've run to the cross and I've taken some of those things. And you know what you're, you're missing? You're missing the, the benefit of locking arms with either brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ who will walk alongside of you and show you grace and will demonstrate the gospel through helping you up and helping you move forward to fight that sin. And like I said on Easter, I mean, we can get all dressed up. But underneath, it doesn't take away from the truth that all of us feel messed up somewhere. We can get dressed up, but we're messed up. And in a room like this, I'd venture to say there's hidden alcoholics and hidden porn addicts and hidden glory hounds and hidden liars and hidden deceivers and hidden arrogant people and hidden broken people and hidden angry people. They're all here and the tragedy is the biggest thing some of us are worried about is people finding out that that's true about us. And maybe you're more concerned about people finding out about that truth than you're more concerned about being healed and restored and it's ludicrous. If you just look at the cross and remember, listen, how does Jesus view you? How does God view you through the blood of Christ? As you've confessed those sins and repented of those sins. Here's another place where you need to run and not hide and bring some people in on that. It's a place where it's okay to not be okay. And if this can't be a place like this, we've got to change it. We've got to change it. It just makes sense, right? If the cross of grace is a place, think about this, where I can be real and I can be repentant and I can be me and still loved. Shouldn't that be true of a community of grace? So you know what the answer is? Let's go to the cross this morning. Let's remember the love and the grace and the unbelievable amount of goodness that was poured out for us. Let's pray. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to go into a time as we remember the cross because experiencing a community of grace and experiencing a culture of gospel-centeredness comes out of the overflow of us being more and more overwhelmed with and blown away by and receiving a deeper understanding of what happened on that cross. And Jesus coming out of that empty tomb. And so we're going to we're going to pause and we're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning.